Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. What a great morning this morning. Baptisms, wonderful singing, praise and honor and worship given to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's continue our worship now. As Chris says, we're in the book of Acts. If you turn there to the 21st chapter, we're going to be reading the first 17 verses this morning. So if you'd please turn there again, Acts 21. And stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 21, verses 1 through 17. This is God's word. Now, when we had parted from them and had set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and then the next day to Rhodes, from there to Patara. Having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us uh, until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. After greeting the brothers, we stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit said. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this bell and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, crying and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. Heavenly Father, we just delight to open up your word and be instructed by it. And that's what I pray. I pray that you would instruct your people through this text, that you would change our hearts through this text, that you would conform us more and more into the image of your Son and the strength of your Spirit through this text. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. evangelist and American Civil War chaplain Henry Trumbull once said, if a man is not ready to die, he is not ready to live. He who is unready to lay down his life at the call of duty will not use his life to advantage while it is spared to him. It is a great mistake to suppose that it is a man's first duty to take care of his life or to preserve his health or to look out for his own interests or to protect or support his family. His first duty is to do right. His second duty is to do right. His last duty is to do right. If the responsibility is upon him for the hour to risk his health or his life in behalf of his family or of a stranger or of any trust committed to him, he ought to take that risk and push ahead at any cost. Living is good business for a man only when a man is as ready to die as to live. If a man is not ready to die... He is not ready to live. 
Let me just ask you this morning, right from the get-go, right from the start, are you ready to die? Are you ready to die for what you know to be true? Are you ready to be persecuted, bound, imprisoned, beaten, maybe tortured? Are, Are you ready to forsake your earthly existence for your Lord? That's what Paul says in verse 13 here. I am ready not only to be bound, but to die at Jerusalem. Can you say the same? Now, be honest with yourself now. Can you say the same? I think death, over any other topic in all the world, has a wonderful way of either confirming the depths or exposing the shallowness of one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the non-believer, of course, the reality of death looms large not only because it's the great equalizer, no amount of money or power or fame or influence can stop their death. The rich man will die as the poor man dies, but even so it looms large because no matter how pomp or how smug or arrogant they are in matters related to their own death and life thereafter, the reality is they actually have no idea what happens when they pass from this life to the next. And whether they want to admit it or not, deep down this terrifies them. It terrifies them. To a lesser degree, I would also say this is uh, true of the new, weak, or immature believer. Though, instead of an outright fear of what's to come, many times there seems to be at least a season of wanting to postpone the inevitable. (laughs) Oh, if I could just get my license first, if I could just graduate first, get my degree first, if I could just get married first, oh, if I could just have kids, if I could just raise my kids until they're adults, make a little money, buy a house, accomplish some goals in my career, retire, or travel the world, then I will be ready to be with my Lord. But this isn't the mindset of the true, mature, faithful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe for the mature believer, there's always this conscious awareness, especially as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, that the more time we spend on this earth, we see it ain't all it's cracked up to be. Okay, That Louis Armstrong, as talented as he was, had it wrong. When you begin to look past the veneers and the facades, it's not such a wonderful world after all. (laughs) And the believer knows, as Paul says, to be with our Lord will be far better. It will be far better. Now, this doesn't mean that he longed to experience physical death, which is a part of the curse. Not that any of us are pining to perish from this earth as a part of some twisted suicidal fetish or cultish preoccupation, uh, but rather, as those whose feet are fixed upon the firm foundation of the promises of Yahweh and his holy and inspired word, we trust in the reality that he is sovereign over all events, including the circumstances surrounding our death, and therefore, we are able to say with confidence, I am ready to die. I'm ready to die. No matter what may come my way, no matter what forces may come up against me, I'm ready to see my Lord. I'm ready to spend my eternity in his glorious presence. I ask again, is this true of you? Is it true of you? Let's dive into this text together this morning because I believe it's in this text that we see both what prompted such a bold declaration from Paul in the first place and also what or who Paul is willing to die for, not just any old cause, not for any old reason, but why? Uh, Look with me at verse 1, point 1 in your outline. Uh, Luke writes, Now, when we had parted from them and had set sail, again, this is Luke writing in the first person. He's a part of this delegation taking an offering from the Gentile churches to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, They were now leaving the Ephesian elders in Miletus, you remember. When we parted from them, the Ephesian elders, we came by a straight course to Kaz and next day to Rhodes and were from there and from there to Patara. Having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After that, Looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. 
They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. I believe we see two main things here. First, the waiting, and then the warning. Okay? If you'll notice, we see a flurry of cities listed as they made their way back to Jerusalem. Very important cities, very well-known cities during that time. Kaz was an island on the Aegean Sea known for their worship of Greek gods, primarily Juno. Rhodes was a city-state island, and like Ephesus, it was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The last wonder of the ancient world, the statue of the Greek sun god Helios, otherwise known as Colossus. The statue was said to be 100 feet, uh, 105 feet high, and it stood at the entrance of a great harbor that was fixed on the island. Now, some folks think that the statue, which is about the size of the Statue of Liberty, stood on the side of the entrance of the harbor, and some believe it straddled the two pieces of land, providing an interesting view for the sailors passing underneath. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we don't know that for sure. <laughs> We do know is that by the time that Paul got there, it was no longer standing. It had been destroyed by an earthquake. Okay? We also know Paul wasn't there for sightseeing. Okay? He wasn't going to all these cities and to see all these wonders. He had a goal. Get me to Jerusalem. Get me to those poor Jewish Christian believers along the way. Many day trips. Okay? He stops at Kaz. He stops at Rhodes, Patara, and Tyre. And as you can see from the map there, there's a quite a distance from Patara to Tyre. That means it had to be a pretty big uh, ship. And this is confirmed by the fact that it took seven days to unload. So they had to wait, right? They wait. Remember, Paul's chomping at the bit here to get back home before Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover, right? Acts 20, verse 6, says that he celebrated Passover in Philippi three weeks later, meaning he has less than 30 days to get home before Pentecost. But now, seven days entire. So what'd they do while, while they waited? Well, Luke says in verse 4, they looked up the disciples, meaning there wasn't a host of faithful men and women standing on the docks waving them in. They had to go into the city to find some Believers. Now, anybody who's ever traveled outside of the States knows the comfort of finding other believers in pagan countries, okay? And for Paul and Luke and the others in the presence of, uh, 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 for others, the presence of Christians would have been exponentially more satisfying to the soul. Christians, let alone Jewish Christians, weren't exactly beloved in the first century Roman Empire, okay? Now, I remember when I went to Myanmar for the first time, or Burma, I was super nervous. In fact, I was scared. Okay? I was scared. I had read in The Voice of the Martyrs about how oppressive the, this country was to Christians. It was one of the worst because of the Burmese military. They were notorious for persecuting non-Buddhists. So here I am. I arrive at the airport. I get driven to my hotel. All alone, I walk out into the streets. I'm pasty white, and I'm a foot taller than everybody else. Okay, so I'm sticking out like a sore thumb here, and I don't know what they're going to ask me if they want to look in my bag. It's loaded with Bibles and sermons, so I just check in and I wait. Well, in about five minutes, I get a phone call from our contact, Cap, to tell me to come downstairs. He says, there's about 15 to 20 young men and women from the Bible college. They'll be waiting for you. And I tell you this. They were a sight for sore eyes. They were balm to a weary soul. Why? Because even though I had never met them before, I knew because of who they were associated with, at least some of them had the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of them. And we inevitably had this bond. I, I felt comfortable with them immediately, so much so that we went right down to a ferry that took you, takes you across the river, and we were passing out gospel tracts. It was, it was surreal. The fear had subsided. There was now an excitement because I was with the brethren. It was a different culture, though, I'll tell you that. I remember seeing this guy. He's pushing a little wooden cart with all kinds of food on it, and snacks, gums, candies, drinks, and four or five chickens hanging off the side by their feet. And I thought, this is disgusting. That's not sanitary. I thought, I wonder how long those things have been dead, hanging around like that. Well, all of a sudden, one of those chickens looked at me real quick. 
I thought, man, that's a miserable calling. Anyhow, Luke says that they looked up some disciples. They found him. They stayed with him seven days. What a glorious time this must have been for those believers. The great apostle has come to visit us. Everything's going great. Right up into the moment, he says, me and the guys here are going to Jerusalem to take this offering. Then I'm going to Rome. What's their reaction in verse 4? Luke says, they kept telling. They continued telling him. They were persistent in telling and warning Paul to not go up to Jerusalem. Don't do it, Paul. Don't go up to Jerusalem now. Now, why would they say this? Well, because they knew what folks thought about him in Jerusalem. They knew what awaited him there. Sure, many of them had just met the guy for the first time, but just like those kids in Myanmar, they had a bond. They loved him. They were his brothers and sisters. Oh, don't go. Don't go, Paul. Just stay here with us. You can stay here. And I think this happens more often than we realize. A young person, young family desires to go out to the mission field. Maybe they're called to go off into the dangerous world without the creature comforts and freedoms of modern-day America, only to find well-meaning parents and friends and family members, even brothers and sisters in the church, saying, whoa, why would you do that? Why are you going there? You have so much to lose. That seems so irresponsible. That's crazy. You're going to get killed. It reminds me of a a not-so-well-known figure in the uh, Reformation, the Protestant Reformation period, named Thomas Bilney. He was smaller in stature. He was uh, very meek, humble. He had the nickname Little Bilney. One church historian wrote that Bilney was born in Norfolk in 1495. He went to study at Trinity Hall, Cambridge in 1510 before later being ordained as a Catholic priest. But during his time in the church, the young scholar began to question, can I truly be right with God? Well, the answer came when he acquired a a copy of the New Testament in Greek, recently published by the Dutch scholar Erasmus. Upon reading it, Bilney came to realize that he possessed the very word of God, the truth, which clearly triumphed the traditions of the church. And it was the words of 1 Timothy 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, that brought Thomas Bilney to salvation. If Paul, the chief of sinners, could be saved, he reasoned, then why can't I? Quote, he was a natural leader, but following his salvation, he felt compelled to serve people and share the gospel message, most notably with a priest and rising star of the church, Hugh Latimer, Bilney used a time of confession to witness to Latimer, sharing his testimony and the true gospel message. Latimer said, I learned more in this time of confession than any time before. It was through Bilney's steadfast sacrifice that Latimer and other reformers began to grow spiritually. However, in 1527, Bilney was pulled from his his pulpit He was later summoned to London for teaching salvation through Christ alone, not Christ in the church, telling his people that they must deny their allegiance to the Pope, saying, quote, against them, good people. We must preach and teach unto you, for we cannot come to them. It is a great pity that they have sore slandered the blood of Christ. So he was arrested, he was tried, he was found guilty of heresy and thrown into a prison where he now faced a public execution by being burned at the stake, unless, of course, he would recant, which he did. Listen to this. Initially steadfast, Billy was encouraged by his friends to recant, persuaded that he would be more useful to the cause alive than burned at the stake. So he denied his Lord. He renounced his words and works and returned home after a year in jail. After recanting his faith, though, Bilney became a broken man, full of remorse that he had let his Savior down. When released, he returned back to Cambridge, where his friends said he was in such great conflict they were afraid he would do himself harm. Another historian said Bilney suffered a great depression and a burning hell of despair and regret for two years after having recanted. Bilney wasn't like Paul, ready to die. But rather, 
Like Peter, who denied his Lord, he must have wept bitterly. Some people can be persuaded by well-meaning friends and family members to sacrifice the eternal for the temporal, but that wasn't Paul's attitude, okay? How about you? How about you? Will you be talked out of your faithful service to Christ because of some temporal reason to, to maintain your comfortable lifestyle? To save your own life, perhaps? What did Jesus say about that? He who would save his life will lose it. This is the time to think about it right now. Think about it now. Now, the following has to be said, okay? When, when Luke says here in verse 4 that the disciples told Paul through the Spirit to not to set foot in Jerusalem, what's he saying here? I mean, we know Paul goes anyhow. We just read it. Spoiler alert, he ends up in Jerusalem in verse 17. So is this an example of blatant disobedience to the commands of the Spirit by the great apostle? Well, some people think so. Agabus, in a moment, will tell him the same thing. He says, the Spirit says, here's how you'll end up if you go down there, Paul. Now, some people think that Paul was so stubborn, so arrogant, that he forsook the counsel and warning of the disciples and the prophet and just blatantly said, no, forget it. But I don't believe that's the case. First of all, there were, these were warnings from people, okay? Not directly from the Spirit. How, how was Paul to know whether it was truly the Spirit or not? Not only that, but he's consistently proved to live a life of obedience in the Spirit. Acts 16, the Spirit said, don't go to Asia. So Paul didn't go. On the other hand, when he was told to go to Macedonia, he went. After the riot in Ephesus, Luke says that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Paul lived a life in continual sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. I don't think all of a sudden we're going to see Paul plugging his ears and saying, you know what, God, I think I got this one from now on. I got the plan. Don't worry about it. I'm going to call the shots. Plus, think about his conversion in Acts chapter 9, right? The Lord said to Ananias, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, that's exactly what happens. Both the suffering and his standing before kings in Jerusalem, Okay? First is standing before the leaders of Israel in chapter 22, then Governor Felix in Caesarea, then another named Festus, finally King Agrippa. Beyond this, he had just like days ago told the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not make my life of any account or dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He knew. He knew what awaited him, but he was bound by the Spirit to go. Okay, so he goes. And we'll see in the coming chapters, he makes no mention of any disobedience to the Lord as it pertains to this trip here. Now, was Paul perfect? Of course not. He was still a sinner. Uh, but am I comfortable saying that Paul would uh, disobey a direct personal warning from the Spirit of God? I'm not. But some commentators, some reputable commentators, even commentators that I love, have said otherwise. Again, I think these believers in Tyre were sincere, but they didn't know what Paul knew at this time, okay? And how significant this bringing, uh, the bringing of this offering and, and finishing his course was. They just didn't want to see him hurt or killed. This is understandable. But Luke says, after seven days, Paul and his crew were out on their way to Jerusalem. Look at verse five. When our days there were ended, we left, started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us out until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. What a great example of Christian love and unity here. I love this passage here. 
you can almost picture these guys on that beach praying together. You know, not just the pastor and, and the delegation, but the whole church. Uh, men, women, children. It's beautiful. Verse 6. Uh, then we went on uh, board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. After greeting the brothers, we stayed with them for a day. Again, mostly day trips here. Verse 8. Uh, on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Then again, we see uh, <coughs> Agabus, who warns Paul about what awaits him in Jerusalem. So here we see the way and the warning, and the second warning. This is point two in your outline. Now, why do I say the way here? Well, because the familiar name pops up in the text. Philip. Not Philip the Apostle, but Philip, one of the seven, one of the seven from back in Acts chapter 6, who many think were the first deacons. The same one who went up to Samaria preaching the gospel after the persecution of Stephen. The same one who went down to the Gazan Road and met with the Ethiopian eunuch, whom he shared the gospel with. Notice how he's not Philip the deacon, he's Philip the evangelist. Isn't that a great title? Only used one other place in the whole rest of the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Well, what does an evangelist do? He tells sinful men and women how they can be saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from an eternity apart from the love of God. Saved from the wrath of God. And saved to life everlasting in the presence of God in the new heavens on the new earth. He tells them how men and women were separated from their creator even at their conception as they inherited the original sin of their head or their representative Adam. The evangelist tells them that because they were born with original sin, they were born under condemnation. They were born under God's judgment. Jesus said the same thing. Whoever does not believe is judged already. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're born in a condemned state. We were all born in this condemned state. We were all born in sin because we all came from Adam. He was our original earthly father, and when he sinned, he fell. And everyone born of his seed fell as well. That's just how it is. Some 2,000 years later, another representative was born. 2,000 years ago, I should say. The only one born without a human father, right? Which means that the original sin that we all have wasn't in him, was it? He was born of a virgin. He was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, and yet it was the will of his father to crush him. It pleased Yahweh to crush him. To offer him up as a sacrifice sufficient to atone for the sin of all who believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation and reconciliation to the Father. An evangelist, one who knew the gospel, would look into the eyes of his hearers and say, you have fallen short of God's perfect expectations for your life. You have fallen short He is perfectly holy. You are totally corrupt. Not only were you born in sin, but you've willingly transgressed his holy law all by yourself, and you deserve his wrath. You deserve his condemnation. If you die in this state, he will send you to hell. If you die in this state, he will send you to hell. And he will send you to an eternity in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever and ever. But here's the good news. Here's the euangelion. Here are the good tidings. God sent his son to die in your place if you would but believe in him. 
He took your place on the cross. He bore your sin on the tree. He took the punishment that you deserved. The penalty that so rightly belonged to you as he hung on that cross and breathed his last last as he was separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity so that you wouldn't have to be. He was then placed in an empty tomb. He was triumphantly raised from the dead three days later, proving first that the Father had accepted his sacrifice and second that those who belonged to him would also be raised to new life, eternal life. He then ascended back up to heaven from where he would send his Holy Spirit to indwell those who belong to him, to indwell them, to seal them, to confirm them, to instruct them, to teach them, to enlighten them, to give them boldness and confidence for everyone who would believe in this gospel so that when they stood before their persecutors, they too would be ready to die. Just like their Lord I ask you this morning, have you believed in this gospel? Do you believe the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin? Your personal sin, your past, present, and future sin. I'm not talking about the sins of your wife. I'm not talking about the sins of your husband. I'm not talking about the sins of your kids. I'm not talking about the sins of your neighbor or your family member or your coworker. I'm talking to you right now as an eternal soul. Do you believe that he paid the price for your sin? Do you believe that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price for your sin? Well, I'm here to tell you it was. If you've never believed in this gospel, I would invite you to do so today. Cry out to him. Tell him, like we heard this morning at the baptisms. I can't save myself. What do you want me to do? Well, here's what you do. Ask him to save you. Cry out to him. Ask for his forgiveness. He will forgive you. He delights to save his people, but you have to cry out. You have to... Recognize your need for forgiveness. Recognize your need for salvation from his wrath, from his condemnation. You need a savior. And he has provided one in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both able and willing to forgive you today. That's what Philip spent his life telling people. And I know many of you do as well. So he's the evangelist, but he's also a father himself. He's got these four virgin daughters, unmarried daughters. And it appears he was a good one. Uh, These were all godly women. They were even given the gift of prophecy. But whether this is foretelling or foretelling, we don't know. Whether this is speaking of future events or teaching the word to other women, we just don't know. We do know that in the general assembly, when the church was gathered, it was the prophecy of Agabus that was declared. Agabus, you remember from back in Acts chapter 11, he predicted a famine. One of them, (coughs) uh, named Agabus, stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine all over the world. Next words. This took place in the reign of Claudius. That's what happened. So he was a prophet of good reputation, a true prophet. Now in a dramatic display in our verse 11, Luke says, In coming to us, he took Paul's belt around his, uh, excuse me, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, this wasn't a typical belt like we would think of a belt. It was like a rope. It was like a twine that Paul could have wrapped around himself many times. Well, Agabus takes it, and he says, this is how you're going to end up when you go down there. Okay? No, he didn't say, thus says the Spirit, don't go. He just said, this is how you're going to end up when you go down there. And that's what happens, right? In fact, we don't even get out of this chapter without this happening. Anyhow, Luke says in verse 12, When he had heard this, as we, this is Luke, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answers, what are you doing? Crying and breaking my heart. For I am ready, not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
So there in just two verses, we see the weeping and the willingness. Okay, point three. Look at the verses again. Just like in Tyre, the Caesarean believers said, man, don't go. We love you. Stay here instead. But he says, why are you doing this? You're crying, breaking my heart. This shows that he cares what they thought. He didn't just blow them off. In fact, that word for breaking my heart there can be making my heart weep. Why are you making my heart weep? There's all kinds of weeping going on here. Again, even Luke's in on the action. But Paul is determined. I must go. I'm going to take this offering down to them. And the threats of man's bindings will not deter me in the slightest as I'm already bound by God the Holy Spirit. What can man do to me? If they kill me, they're really just doing me a favor because I'm instantly in glory with my Lord. I'm not only ready to be bound, but I'm ready to die, he says. Again, can the same be said about you this morning, my brothers and sisters? Are you ready? Now, we don't go out looking for persecution. We don't make ourselves martyrs. It's not right to have some sort of death wish here. We ought to be, but we have to be ready when the time comes and not shrink back from being faithful to our conscience and our convictions. Remember that quote that I opened up with from uh, Trumbull? If a man is not ready to die, he is not ready to live. You know, he finished that quote by emphasizing that Paul didn't just want to die for any reason. He wasn't suicidal here. But it was for a cause. It was for a purpose, a person. Quote, For the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul was ready to be bound or to die. There is no true discipleship of Jesus which does not reach thus far. He who would not die for his Savior does not live for his Savior. Unless the disciple gives his Savior the first place in his affections, his discipleship is only an empty name. So much for carnal Christianity. Don't believe that lie from Satan. Unless the disciple gives his Savior the first place in his affections, his discipleship is only an empty name. Nominalism. Again, I ask you, is this true of you? Are you saved? Are you a true disciple? Every true believer is a true disciple of Christ. So are you truly one of his? You say, well, how do I know? Well, does he have first place in your affections and in your heart? If not, I would ask him to rid you of whatever takes that preeminent spot. Rid me of it, no matter what it is. On April 14th, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet, or Assembly of Worms, a city in Germany. Uh, he, too, had preached against the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church. He, too, had stood against the papacy and said, the power of God and a sinner's justification was not in Christ plus the church, but in Christ and Christ alone. That salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Faith in the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God to salvation for everyone who would believe. Well, you can imagine how this sat with his opponents, right? The emperor who was in cahoots with the papacy had banned the sale of all the reformers' books, ordered them to be seized. He was already excommunicated, and now his life was in great danger causing his friend George Spalatin to send word through a special messenger to not come to this council lest he suffer the same fate as John Huss who was burned at the stake years earlier. But Luther comforted his friend saying, though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned. Christ still lives. I shall go to Worms Though there, be, there, though there will, were as many devils as tiles on the roof. I shall go to Worms. Though there were as many devils as tiles on the roofs. That's, some, that's something. Luther was ready to die. And because he was ready to die, he was able to truly live. 
And live he did. He would go on for 25 more years to have a profound impact on the lives and the souls of many. And the same can be said of you if you're sitting here listening to my voice this morning. But you must be ready to die first. Then you can truly live. Less than 10 years after this bold declaration of Luther, however, there was another reformer who was now ready to die, and die he did. His name? Thomas Bilney. Little Bilney. After experiencing those two years of great depression and a burning hell of despair for having recanted of his faith and his convictions of the great doctrines of Scripture, Bilney all of a sudden became convicted by the Spirit and resolute in his determination to stand upon that which he knew to be true, no matter the cost. He told his friends and his family that he was, quote, going up to Jerusalem, they would see him no more, which meant that he would return to preaching truth regardless of the dangers, if not in the pulpit, then in the streets of England. And so he did. Defying both Rome and the corrupted officials in the process, he boldly began his service again, even openly distributing copies of the Tyndale Bible, a translation of the inspired text, not in Latin as decreed by the Romish church, but in English, the native tongue of his people. One writer said, he began preaching the gospel without fear and working out his faith in good works. On August 18, 1531, Thomas Bilney again found himself sitting in the jail cell and again visited by some old friends. Now formally charged with heresy, destined to be burned at the stake as a heretic, one of his friends said to him, tomorrow the fire will make you feel its devouring fierceness, but the comfort of God's Holy Spirit will cool it for your everlasting refreshing. Now those are the words I want to hear. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Bilney, appearing to reflect upon what had been said, stretched out his hand toward a candle that was burning on the table and placed his finger on the flame. What are you doing? His friend exclaimed. Nothing, he replied. I'm only trying my flesh. Tomorrow God's rod shall burn my whole body in the fire. Howsoever the stubble of my body shall be wasted by it, a pain for the time is followed by joy unspeakable. It's said that as Bilney passed through the streets of Norwich in the midst of a dense crowd, his demeanor was grave, his features calm, his head had been shaved, wore a layman's gown. Upon arriving at the place of punishment, Bilney fell on his knees and prayed. Then rising up, he warmly embraced his stake and kissed it. Turning his eyes toward heaven, he repeated the Apostles' Creed, and when he confessed the incarnation and crucifixion of the Savior, his emotion was such that even the spectators were moved. The torch was applied to the pile. The fire smoldered for a few minutes, and then suddenly burning up fiercely, the martyr was heard to utter the name of Jesus several times, and sometimes the word credo, I believe. A strong wind, which blew the flames to one side, prolonged his agony. Three times they seemed to go out, and three times they raged again. Until at length, the whole pile being kindled, he expired. And Thomas Bilney was ready. He became the first murderer of the Reformation killed on English soil. He would go on to be known not as little Bilney, but as the father of the English Reformation. Here we are still talking about him today. My brothers and sisters, what will they say about you? What will they say about you? Do you know of such confidence here? The, the confidence that was de- demonstrated by so many before us, the apostles, the evangelists, the early church fathers, many believers and missionaries, men, women, children even. Reformers, those who weren't afraid to stand firm in their faith and remain unwavering in their commitment to upholding the truth that the power of God lies in the gospel of God and in his Christ. When you go out into this world, 
And this world tells you what is good is evil and what is evil is good. What is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. Family is bad, they say. You're a homophobe, they say. You're a bigot, they say. It's just a a lump of cells, they say. Are you willing to stand on what God says to be true and what you know to be true, no matter what they might threaten you with? Are you ready to have your pleasures stripped from you, this comfortable American evangelical life taken from you? Are you ready to be canceled and mocked and berated, fired, expelled, bound, beaten, starved, starved, tortured, even killed for Christ? Are you ready for this? Can you say with these believers in Caesarea and even Luke, who also pleaded with Paul to reconsider to no avail, the will of the Lord be done? That's what he says in verse 14. Since Paul would not be persuaded, we fell silent, saying the will of the Lord be done. Is this true of your life? Can you honestly say the will of the Lord be done? You say, well, how do I know his will? Well, in order to know his will, you have to know him, his his person, his promises, his holy nature. And, And the only way you can know that is to go to the source by which he has revealed himself. His holy and inspired word. Not through apostles or prophets. They're not around anymore. That was for the first century. But through his holy and inspired world, through the faithful proclamation of this divine revelation, we are strengthened through his word and through his spirit. Strengthened by the word, both living and written. Strengthened by the spirit who now dwells inside of you. All things, I, all which I pray take, take preeminent place in your lives here on earth. If, if not, ask him to make it so. Uh, Luke concludes this section in the third missionary journey of Paul in verse 15 by saying this. Now, after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, an early, some translations say, or ancient disciple with whom we were to lodge. I love this Manasin of Cyprus, by the way. Just a quick comment on him. This was an ancient believer. He was an older believer, meaning he was likely around during Pentecost when the Spirit came. He's, he's seen it all. He saw the Jerusalem Council. You know, when we first started over here four or five years ago in Lakewood, I remember people coming up to me all the time and they would say, oh, Matt, we're praying for young families. We're praying for young families. And I said, well, that's real great. That's, that's really nice. But you know what? We want everybody. We want young families. We want old families. We want singles. We want marriage. We want divorced. We want kids. We want whatever it is, whoever the Lord will bring to us. And here's why it's so important to have mature believers in the congregation. Most of the time, the younger families are the younger, not all the time. They come with drama. They're not, they're not as loyal. They're not as faithful. The older believers, they have this wisdom this maturity about them. Why? They've been through the tough times in the Christian life. They've seen their kids walk away from the faith. They've seen what it's like to struggle at work as a Christian, as a believer. They've seen all these things. They've been through the battle. And now they're here to speak into the lives of the hopefully young families that are here. Manasin of Cyprus is a great example of this. He gets right along with them to, Caesar, to Jerusalem. And, and he hosts these guys. He he hosts them in their home. I think this is a wonderful example. I just wanted to say that about Manasin. But look at verse 17. We'll close with this. I'm sorry. Verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. The brothers welcomed us gladly. Even in that statement, we see the remarkable transformative power of the gospel. Remember Paul's first trip to Jerusalem after his conversion. You remember that? They didn't even want to talk to him. They didn't have anything to, didn't want to have anything to do with him. Consider Philip's first encounter with Paul, fleeing from the rabid persecutor of the church. In these 17 verses here, we see both Philip host Paul in his home and the brothers welcoming him gladly. Do you know of this kind of love? Do you know of this kind of fellowship? 
Do you know of this forgiveness, not only between you and your fellow man, but infinitely more important, exponentially more importantly, eternally more importantly, between you and your Creator? I pray that and trust that you do. If you have any questions about what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, come and talk to me after the service. Come and talk to one of the elders after the service. We would love to tell you about the marvelous, redeeming work of God and his Christ. He is worthy of your praise as well as ours. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's uh, give him praise now. We'll invite uh, the music team back up, Tim and the music team, to lead us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you so much for this day, this opportunity to come together free for now, able to open up your word, see public baptisms. Uh, we just we, we give you praise for your grace. But we also don't want to uh, think this is how it's going to be forever. I mean, we, we we're expect persecution. We know that this world hates us because they hated your son. So, We want to be ready. We want to be like Paul. Lord, fill us with your spirit in that time. We're so thankful that you baptized us originally with your spirit. We ask for the grace of being filled with your spirit should this time come in our lives. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that you would just encourage them, draw them closer to you through your word, transform their hearts, conform them into the image of your son, all by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.